I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I was about 14 years old when I went to an outward bound course with my scout troop. Even though it was a perfectly good dirt road that led up to the entrance of the camp, we were dropped off what felt like about 100 miles away from camp and had to carry all our personal luggage as well as all the supplies and equipment our troop needed. From that moment on and for the next five days, my life would consist of a series of moans, grunts, swearing, as well as just humiliation. <laughs> as we were either asked to carry, walk, build, endure, and trust. The quote-unquote highlight of the camp was the 12 hours we were left completely alone overnight in the forest. I will never forget that. Every person in my group was maybe 50 meters apart, but they may as well have been on another continent. And while it might not rank as sequencing genomes or solving the Middle East conflict or building a self-driving car, for me, it really was one of the most defining experiences of my life. My guest today is Jan Reynolds, who, like me, on that lonely night in the mountains of the Nyangani Forest, has also, on countless of occasions, mind you, pushed herself to her outer limits and given everything she had emotionally, physically, and mentally to accomplish something she had never done before. Jan is a world-class skier who holds the women's record for high-altitude skiing. An Olympic biathlete and triathlete, Esquire magazine called her the athlete of the decade. And she's also a mountain climber and was one of the first women to climb and ski around all the peaks of Mount Everest. She has also been an expeditioner and photojournalist for National Geographic and other major publications. But what really caught Jan's imagination and what sets her apart from her peers, in my opinion, were the 16 books she wrote about all the indigenous people she met along these mind-blowing adventures and the vanishing cultures she immersed herself in. Jan is a resident of Vermont and lives right here in Stowe. Jan, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Well, thanks. I am thrilled to be here, and I love your story, your introduction story. That is so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I look at it back now, I uh, always think about that night on the forest, but also just the walking and the climbing and everything that we had to do. It was uh it was kind of painful, <laughs> but defining as well. Well, you know, the image the image that popped into my mind when you were talking was, and that's why I giggled a little bit, because all of life is point of view. Everything is perspective. So for me, I was almost thinking it was cushy because I was used to high altitude climbing where you can't breathe, you're hanging off a cliff, you barely can melt snow for water, you really can't eat any food. And uh, I was on my own, sleeping out, gosh, miles and miles and miles from anyone, not 50 meters. I'm up in the Himalaya 
on the edge of the Nangpala, which is the, I crossed the Himalaya solo when I was covering the ancient Tibetan salt trade for National Geographic. So I was on my own for days and days hanging out up there. And it's a beautiful, ethereal experience because, you know, the the gorgeous ice and glacier, it, when it cracks, it sounds like a whip crack and the wind's blowing and when the sun shines it's just glowing you know all the ice and snow up at about 20,000 feet and so for me it was very beautiful mm. so it what brought to your mind, mind during that time well well, well in our comparison what I wanted to say was that all of life is point of view for you it might have been something you hadn't done and sort of desperate so to put me in perspective in this interview is for me that's what I do so to me that was a lovely experience now what was going through my mind I guess was a couple of things how ethereal it was but also I trekked up there with um, a Sherpa and some yaks of my own which I felt comfortable with because I grew up on a dairy farm and I used to have to go get the cows so yaks are like shaggy shaggy cows um, as I herded them up to as far as they could go and then my Sherpa friend took them back and I was alone Um, so I guess what went through my mind was a little bit of missing the sounds of the yak bells that's how you find the yaks is they have to wander to eat a little bit or whatever and so those sounds of company uh, but then on the other hand, I appreciated the sounds of no company. And so the yaks are there for companionship? No, no, no. The yaks carried my gear. Oh, okay. So you heard the yaks up and they carried, I brought more than, you know, my sleeping bag. I brought skis. I was skiing up there also on my own. And I'm much less likely to fall into a crevasse with skis on. And so when I'm crossing the Nangpala, which is going from Nepal to Tibet, and the height of it is about 20,000 feet. When I was on the glacier, I was on skis. I was there to photograph any long yak caravans if they were going to come across anymore. Uh, The Chinese had taken over Tibet, and we didn't know if there were any more salt caravans crossing. And I caught some of the last few before it was shut down. So I needed to stay in this area by myself for a while, waiting for the act caravans to come through. So therefore, I bought um, some supplies, just food. I had a tent. I had my skis, my camera gear. So that's what the the acts carried. Wow. That sounds uh, exciting. I want to just continue on with that adventure side of things. But first of all, I just wanted to also find out from you, you know, just starting from the very beginning, uh, can you tell me about your childhood and what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I just wanted to be happy when I grew up. Um, I'm number six of seven children uh, raised on a dairy farm in Vermont. So we didn't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere when you need to milk your cows. And when you have seven children, you know, that's too much to take anywhere. So I had a very basic, stable um, home life close to the land and the animals with lots of siblings and and not traveling anywhere. That, That was my basis. And I didn't go anywhere until my second year 
Well, actually, my first year I went away to college. Within a month, I'd applied and been accepted to go to school in Norway. Uh, when I was in high school, I was relatively strong, and I worked to be stronger, and I raced cross-country skiing nationally. I was ranked nationally and uh, therefore was on an elite team and eventually made a U.S. team. But that was my background, being on a dairy farm and being a strong nationally ranked cross-country skier. And then when I was in college, I went to the University of Vermont and raced for them. And we always won the national collegiate championships, the NCAAs. But my second year in school, because I raced with a lot of Norwegians here in the U.S., I wanted to go live in Norway to see what their life was like and what Nordic skiing was like over there. So that's when, at 19, when I finally left home, I went on my own for a year, learned Norwegian, took all my exams and everything in Norwegian. I was at a Norwegian school. Wow. And that's when I went up to the glaciers and learned some ice climbing and whatnot. When I went to Norway, that's when I discovered, you know, how much I love the outdoor winter world. I see. So going out, you know, from being somebody that didn't travel much, you then went pretty far away to Norway. Is that what sort of triggered the sense of adventure? Well, sense of adventure, I, I think for some people, maybe you just come out that way. And I call it curiosity. I don't know if it's so much a sense of adventure. I've got to have an adventure, but I was born very curious. So even on the farm, when I, a, a bird um, hit a window and died, I'm just a little kid, I put it in a box and buried it so I could dig it up later and take a look at it. And, you know, I did things like find underground ducks at school that went into um, where the pole furnace was and figured out how to go out into another room uh, underneath the school and things like that. So I, I would say I was born probably with a sense of curiosity more than sense of adventure and just didn't tame it. I kept assaging my curiosity mm. and I, I just never toned it down, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, and how many countries have you visited? Well, you know, I've never counted. I think mm. a better way to look at the planet personally isn't via countries. I think it's better to look at the planet via regions because after all my time living with indigenous uh, people, you know, at least one on every continent, for almost all of time, and it's still up for debate, but let's say we went from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens, who we are now, has been around for, let's say, 200,000 years. And for almost all of that time, we have lived as tribes, extended families. So there's no voting. You, you ask, you know, you live with aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. And the elders are a council. You, you talk with the council to make a choice as a tribe. Right. Um, in your extended family. So there's no voting. And in tribal life, there are no countries. There were no countries. There were only regions that each group of people lived in on the planet. So when I work with kids a lot, I, I try to open their minds so they don't get so locked into seeing the earth divided up into this square and that square and that square and that political group. Because Really, as a human family, which we are, 
we have just lived in different regions on the planet and developed our own way of negotiating that environment which has created the cultures that we have around the world. And for example, when I was spending time with the Samis, which are the reindeer herders up north for a European tribe, and then I spent time with the Inuit for North America, which are also Arctic, um, Sami means the people. And Inuit means the people in each of their languages. Hmm. So we all thought we were the people until we met other people. <laughs> <laughs> and so my big thing, my mission in life is to get all of us humans to understand as homo sapiens, we're one human family celebrating life on earth. And we've just grown in different regions, environments on the planet, and we are so alike, you know, we need to recognize that. When I was on the Tibetan salt trade, I was with a yak caravan crossing ice and snow, uh, but they're trading salt to survive in that extreme environment. Then I go to Africa, I'm in North Africa, and I'm in the Tuareg, and they were the salt traders who could find water underground, so they ran camel caravans across the Sahara. So my life is exactly the same. I've just traded a yak for a camel and snow for sand. So I just try to, in my books, show people, you might think the people of the, the Himalaya and the people of the Sahara would be so different. But they they're are. just alike. It's only a lot hotter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were these indigenous people welcoming and how did you connect and communicate and gain their trust and acceptance to then go off on these, uh, in these caravans? Well, this is another thing that I need to bring to people's attention. And I work with children a lot. So I often say with the children. So, okay, we've gotten to the point where we realize humans live in regions, not necessarily countries. Although in these last few hundred years of our human existence, we've divided it into countries and voting. But we have not lived that way for almost all of time as a human family. We've been tribal. So when I visited these indigenous tribes, what I need to help you remember is before we really used money, we were trading. Human beings were trading. um, Even that's how cuneiform, our form of writing was invented that was actually a stylus and clay keeping track of things at the market you might draw a chicken like you brought me you know i gave you three chickens so i'm going to keep track of that so when you come back you got to give me five blankets um so we would trade for things and when i visit these indigenous tribes i come with a few trade items that i can carry because i can't take much with me i've got my backpack and my cameras but i will take um silk scarves, wool scarves, gold and silver jewelry. I won't take junk like plastic watches that will fall apart. I'll bring something that I think is decent trade items. And when I will meet these people, I make a few trades and that starts to build some trust. So you have to, you know, rewind your mind, go back in time, think of Marco Polo. So Marco Polo on these long trade routes from Europe to Asia that people used to open their doors to traders because that's where you learn things. That's where you get these wonderful trade items, spices, silks, whatever. So we have forgotten today 
because we can drive our cars, we can live in a cubicle, we can order things online. We start to disassociate from each other. But for human beings, for almost all of time in our more basic tribal trading life, we were meant to meet people. We were meant to open our doors to each other. We were meant to trust each other. We were meant to make these trades so that we each can survive. You know, trading became more sophisticated with beautiful items. But initially, trade was so you could survive. When I'm up in the Himalaya, the only thing that Sherpas can grow are potatoes. They have to trade with everyone from the lowlands that weaves these baskets and brings up chickens and eggs and vegetables. And then the lowland people come up and trade for that salt and the things that come over from up higher. So, so trade is essential to human beings. I mean, look at Amazon now. It's what we're doing, basically. Um, so <laughs> that is how I think trust is built. I make a few trades. They find me sort of interesting. And I don't take my cameras out right away. I meet some people. And there's usually one person that I really connect with. And that's the person I trust. And they trust me. And we make some great trades. And they find me entertaining. So, for example, in the Himalaya, I meet Dawa after I cross the Nongpala. I'm coming over this glacier all by myself and skis. He's never seen this before, this Tibetan fellow. But he's also never seen the wolf scarf on my head or a parka made of feathers. I have on a down parka. And I, I have a plastic squishy cup that I eat all my meals and drink uh, my water out of. And pearl earrings, you know. So he knows he's going to make some great trades. And so he befriends me. And then I meet his wife, his kids, I meet his friends. And once I'm someone's friend, they tend not to mess with me because they're also a friend of Dawa's. And that would be, they'd be a real jerk if they did something to me, right? And I also, I never travel, so far, I haven't traveled with a weapon because I, you know, if you have a weapon on you, and you drop it or someone takes it from you, they can use that weapon on you. Mm. So I think when they see I have a few possessions, I have no weapons, I make a few trades, I'm Dawa's friend. And also, probably being female helps me out. You know, my name is Jan. A lot of times people think Jan Reynolds might be a male, a Norwegian guy, which is Jan or something. But I find the men feel safe around me, but also the women <clears throat> will hang out with me. And if I was a big guy with a big bushy beard, you know, they might be a little nervous and not be as open. Right. So I think being a female and also the kids, I love kids. I work with kids. I write kids books. So essentially when I go somewhere, I think people feel comfortable with me. And also, growing up on a farm, I'm used to being close to the land and the animals. And, and basic indigenous society is always pretty close to the land and the animals. That's how they survive. So, Did you ever feel like you were in danger at all? Oh, I don't know. Not a lot. Not much. And I guess I felt all right because, you know, I, I'm struggling to describe when you're used to being in such a desperate think of you know all these movies and everything about climbing Everest and when you're way up in what they call the death zone you're just trying to survive so when I'm down lower and I'm with people and there's food and there's animals to me you know all of life is perspective I'm feeling like this is all gravy 
And then I've got a friend I tend to trust. So it feels easier. How did you and communicate? I feel safer. Well, you know, if you and I didn't have the phone and we're looking at each other, we'd just use hand signals and we'd laugh and we'd figure it out. You don't always need language to communicate. Very interesting. So with all the traveling, I mean, do you think uh, Western culture and sort of the, Amer the American way of life uh, is the best life? or And do you think the rest of the world should be emulating these lifestyles? Well, you know, we didn't just evolve from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens and stop. We're still evolving as humans and uh, will continue to evolve. And actually, I think with our technology, you know, we're in transition, but I see us returning more towards where we've come from, the kinds of societies I'm talking about. And you might go like, huh, what? But Think about this. I have my own house in Stowe, Vermont, but I also rent some rooms on Airbnb, and that's people call that the sharing economy. Mm -hmm. When I have people come and go out of my home now, I feel a lot like those Sherpas and Tibetans that opened their doors to people on the salt trade going up and over that Nampala and doing trades. So the other thing, think of Uber and Lyft the car sharing idea yep. and again that's the sharing economy and so I'm kind of thinking because I'm exploring this idea myself I think I'm going to drive a little bit of uh, Lyft and Uber this summer along with my Airbnb because I have met so many interesting people and um, I see that as returning back towards people connecting with people and when I'm making my books and I'm in the field, I was just with the only place on the planet one can find the Asiatic lion. Now, of course, there's lions in Africa, but there used to be lions all across Europe and Asia. So the lions have been, the Asian, they call it the Asiatic lion, has been eradicated except for one place in India, and it's in Gear, the Gear Sanctuary. And there's about 523 lions left. While I was making this book, I was on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and there were students and teachers all around the world that were with me in real time, meaning when I was there shooting photographs and getting information, these kids and teachers were tweeting to me, you know, get a photograph of this, get a photograph of that, and telling me I want more information about this and that. So I'm basically building a book for my audience, my readers, with my readers. In real time. So that's yeah. another way that it's, it's almost the sharing economy. We're all together, although I'm the author, I'm working with my readers, and they're with me every step of the way. When I see the first lion, they're all, you know, I had to, I'm out on safari and I'm going, I got to see a lion, everybody's waiting, you know, and, and, and some of the guides would say, I've got a picture of a lion. I said, no, 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 they're all with me. Like when I see a lion, they see a lion. So we're out looking, 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 you know, and, and I represent everyone who's following me. Mm. So long-winded example, but that, that I feel is sort of taking us a little bit back towards 
that tribal attitude, you know, we're all together. I've got my little tribe that wants to learn what I'm learning. And I, I've got my doors open to people that are traveling and I've, I'm driving people that need to get where they need to go. You know, right. that's my, my yak or camel caravan is my car. <laughs> so it, it may sound bizarre to you. I think we have reached a point where we're somewhat alienated from each other, but I think we're returning to connecting more. I love your optimism and I am with you on that one too. Um, so with the way the world is turning, uh, do you think that is still possible to preserve the languages, traditions, cultures of these indigenous people that you came across? Well, who knows? Who knows? And there's a lot in the language because I know when I'm speaking Norwegian, I almost Think, I, I'm assuming you speak a few languages. When I'm speaking that language, I almost think differently. My hand expressions change. My facial expressions change because all of that goes along with the language. And then when I'm speaking French, all those things change. So, you know, when I was with the, the Tuareg, they speak Tomashek, and I recorded some of their songs, and it was only the old people that could tell me what the songs meant. I asked some young people to translate for me, and they even had lost. They didn't even know some of the words in their language. So I just wish someone was funded or I could be funded to capture as many languages as we can. But it's hard to know. What what does one do? We have those languages recorded. They're recorded as part of our humanity. Yeah, it's a difficult one. So... Um, another thing I wanted to find out from you, like, uh, can you just show up in Nepal, for instance, at the base of the Himalayan mountains and just start climbing? Or what do you need to do? Like, You can go and climb on your own. There's a certain number of lower peaks that are called trekking peaks. So you could even Google Nepal's trekking peaks. So you can go over there without a permit. If you want to climb a big peak, um, the, of course, the government would like to make some money. Uh, so if you go in with a big expedition for a higher peak, which is above, I think above 20,000 feet or so, you have to get a permit and you have to pay for that permit and you have to wait for your, your scheduled time to climb that particular peak. But if you're climbing something a little bit lower, you could get, you can, it's a trekking peak, you can go anytime and you can, once you get over there, you can find some people at the market and you could ask them if they would, carry some goods for you, and you could just trek in and climb. I wouldn't recommend it unless you are a climber and have had experience climbing, but you could go over to Nepal and in Kathmandu, look around for trekking guides, and hire yourself a climbing guide, and they could take care of things for you when you were over there. Now, you can also get online and buy a permit and hire a trekking agency to organize an expedition on a big peak. But you'll have to wait for your time. And the people that you traveled with, uh, how did you pick those people in your expeditions? Well, on the big um, extreme expeditions, you know, carefully, people we knew who had complementary skills. So we all had our own personal expertise that when you put it together, we're better than the sum of our parts. And you were usually the only woman in the group. Did you experience a lot of uh, like sexism or anything like that? Because I'm assuming well, these are like you know, endurance type 
things that you're doing, my assumption is guys who probably have that mindset, like, you know, we could do this better or we're stronger or you cannot carry that kind of thing. Well, for sure. Because, you know, um, any man that is a leader and on a high altitude climbing expedition, he's done an awful lot to get to that place in the world. His skills are very good. Um, you know, I was accepted pretty well by the guys. I was always the only female and we're always successful and a more diverse team is stronger. However, so I won't go on and on, but I have a whole book about this. So if anyone wanted to know really what it's like, <clears throat> I have a book, it's called, I don't like the title, but the publisher one It's called High Altitude Woman. And it's all, I use my personal um, anecdotes and I back them up with current social science and data about how men and women work together as teams. And some of the really common things is that on every expedition, I had to prove it again. My, my climbing partner that I was with on every expedition, he never had to. He was a male. It was just interesting. He did one expedition. Everybody knew what he did. It was fine. Me as a female, every single time I'm under more, you could call it stress, more stress. I've got to prove it again. I even had to solo the Grand Teton on a 5'9 climb with no rope to show one guy I was worthy of climbing. <laughs> Good thing we didn't die. So typical things would happen to me, aside from having to prove it again. Um, men, and this happens in the corporate world, men tend to interrupt women more. They tend to talk over women more. We'd be looking at the map. And I used to race orienteering, which is a running race with a map. So not only do you have to read a map really fast, you're running and searching for hidden um, flags you've got to um, you've got to punch into to show that you you reached each flag in a running race so I can read a map well to the nth degree and fast and you know I'd see these guys sometimes making a mistake like not knowing how far we'd gone in a certain amount of time and say we're going to camp here tonight well at that rate we were moving we wouldn't make it to where they wanted to camp Night would fall and we'd be in a crevasse field. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be benighted where there are cracks, crevasses that go down 30, 40, 50 feet. You fall in and you can't get back out until you melt out a few thousand years later. So, you know, I'd be interrupted and talked over. It would be hard for me. For example, I'd say something like that. Oh, I think we're going to get benighted here. Let's camp before the crevasses. This is something called the the butterfly syndrome. When I say it, it's the cocoon. It just sits there. But if one of the guys on the expedition goes, "Yeah, right. We could, you know, we could be benighted by these crevasses. We better camp before them," and then it'll be a butterfly. It'll get wings and fly. And I've read about <laughs> the same thing happens in the corporate world. The woman at wow. the table will say something, and she gets ignored. Mm. Finally, when one guy says exactly what she said, <laughs> then it takes flight. So I could go on and on and on about those kinds of things. So I would experience those uh, things as a woman with all men, but with patience, they eventually saw that I was there, available, strong, had the skills, uh, and they would let me have a voice. And another example, women have better fine motor skills, men have better gross motor skills. So think like needlepoint. Men can do it, of course, but women tend to be better. 
think, you know, physical physique, gross motor skills, men are stronger, tend to be a little better. Uh, therefore, you know, men's Olympic times are better than women's. But in a team, when you're climbing, you need all those skills. Right. And we had to use this terrible, dirty fuel in Nepal for our high-altitude stoves. So that dirty fuel would clog those little fuel leads that would f feed the fire. If you can't melt snow for water, your expedition's over. I, I, I don't care how many hundred thousands of dollars you spend on this expedition to do some, you know, to claim some first, um, you know, to be the first to do this or that. So one of our guys had wrecked one of our two high-altitude stoves, trying to, like, get it to light. And in anger, he threw it. It melted a hole in the tent, and it blew up. <laughs> we had one high-altitude stove. And I had built this little tool that I could, with a wire, that I could put it inside and clean these fuel leads, which I would do every time carefully before I lit the stove. Mm. And the guys figured out, oh, you know, when Jan lights the stove, it works every time. And and they kind of just left me alone. And they, I became this, it's not like, you never hear, Jan, you're really good at that. You should light the stove. When I'm working with all the guys, the compliment is no one picks up the stove. I just light it. And that's the way, it just, just like, you know, I, I say something about the map. And they don't argue with me. They never. Right. So that's how it works for me with guys. I've got to prove it again. <laughs> but they eventually see I've got it going on, and then they're okay with me, and we work well as a team. Wow. So I guess the the whole driving and asking for directions thing extends well into the upper stratosphere of this planet of ours. Well, of course, because I, I want to say one last thing about about it. Men and women are different. Now, we all fall on a scale from masculine to feminine, so we all fall at different spots. So I'm not trying to say uh, we are grossly different. We're more alike than we are different. Mm -hmm. But if we quantify behavior as an entire gender, male and female, we do find some data. And um, we are our hormones. Our hormones are chemicals in our brains. And the chemicals in our brains cause different responses. So there are some quantifiable differences between males and females. But someone like me, yes, I'm all female, and I am heterosexual, and I'm married, and I have two kids, but I have a lot of what's classified as feminine characteristics, but I also have what's classified as masculine characteristics. You know, feminine is nurturing right. and uh, bonding and connecting. Masculine is um, leadership, ambition, vision, you know, um, not that women don't have vision. Yeah, no, I totally get it's more quantifiable as quantifiable as something more aggressive. Uh, right. There's a psychologist, Car famous Carl Jung. He said every human being should try to develop their animus and anima. So animus is masculine, anima is feminine. So I am a woman. So the feminine is easier for me. But over time, I needed to develop more masculine traits, which is my animus, which is inside me anyway. And people that develop both their masculine and feminine characteristics tend to be happier people because people that connect with more people 
So if I can connect with more masculine and more feminine people, more people on that line from masculine to feminine, the people that connect with more people tend to be happier people. Um, so on the whole masculine feminine uh, spectrum thing here, what would you do like uh, for bathing and going to the bathroom and when it's hot, guys can just whip off their shirts, you know, uh, it's harder as a female. Exactly. The men they can put their they can put their back to the wind and take a leak, right? Right. When I was doing this with men way back in my twenties, I had to face into the wind, drop trowel, so that the wind would blow everything away and it wouldn't be in my pants. Now they've developed products for women so it's not so difficult. So, you know, it was much harder as a female, but mm. you know, that male female stuff of just basic um you know, pooping, peeing, let's just say it, but it, right. say what it is and all of that, it sort of falls by the wayside. And a funny story, when we were when we were in the back of a truck headed towards Tibet, um, the Chinese, we were coming we were crossing China and we're in Tibet and they wouldn't stop the truck, but we were adjusting to high altitude, so you have to drink a lot of water all day. Water helps you create more um uh, you need to create more uh, red blood cells, which carries the oxygen throughout your body. So you right. got to drink a lot of water, a gallon or two a day. Now, the men, because they would never, we're in, sitting in the bed of the truck in the back with all our gear, and the men could just sort of kneel against the back and pee off the back. For me, I had to sit on the tailgate and lean over to take a leak. Because they weren't going to stop the truck, right? <laughs> so the men had to hold my legs so I could lean over the back to take a leak. And they would laugh because they'd start to tip me like I'd fall off the truck, which, of course, I'd have to stop peeing. Oh, it was a shock. <laughs> and they'd laugh and laugh. And I'd go, come on, you guys. That is not fair. Just hold it, will you? And they would tease me like that. So this may sound bizarre, and you may want to cut it out of your interview, but that's the basic stuff that disappears, whether you're male or female on an expedition. You know, you relieve yourself. However, you look after each other because life at high altitude is so basic. It's not about, it's about survival. You're not thinking about those other things. You're just trying to stay alive. Um, I mean, not when you're in the truck, but, you know, we're used to trusting our lives with each other. So you get along on a different level. Um, and also, the person that uh, I lived with was my climbing partner. Oh, okay. uh, we were a couple. So, uh, you know, there was no issue there because I was climbing with my life partner. With your partner, And right. all the other guys just, just met me as a person on the expedition. Got it. So you kept coming back to Vermont after all these yes. mind-blowing, mesmerizing adventures, uh, why? Well, this is where my family is. You know, I have a big family. This is where I was raised. Um, this is my base. This is my home. And I feel pretty strongly, I think, the people that can travel and go away and research and be curious, at least for me, and I wonder if it, appeals or works for other people is that having a very strong sense of home and identity really allows me to go out and reach out and look and learn and and live other places 
because I have such a solid sense of home. And my boys are here, my family's here, my siblings. My mom's 94, she's still here in Vermont. So I think that's why I come back. My I built my home here. Very interesting. And so you've done all these things. Um, what is your true passion? I mean, you've done writing, photography, adventure, travel, anthropology. Well, when you boil it all down, I am really a writer and photographer. And these are all just the places I've gone. So my passion is writing and photography. And I also sell photography as fine art from these places I've been. And I do my books and my photography is in my books. And I think basically you could say I'm a writer and photographer, but what's even behind that and it's what I studied in school, I feel like I'm a teacher. I feel I was trained as a teacher and that's what my books do. It brings back what I see around the world and what I'm curious about. And then my book, High Altitude Woman, it's the same thing. It's what I'm curious about, but it's all about men and women uh, working together well, looking at our, our, you know, our tendencies and appreciating each other. Um, I have another book for adults called Mother and Child, and it's about how children are raised all around the world by indigenous societies, um, that our instincts are good, trust them as a, as a mother. Um, and, and then, of course, all my books for children in schools, it's to teach about our human family. So I'm really a writer and photographer that likes to teach with my writing and photography. It's that simple. Got it. So what are you doing with yourself now? Uh, well, I'm still making my books. I came back from working with the the female rangers. They call them the lion queens uh, and investigating the Asiatic lions. So I just keep making my books and I give lectures. I give lectures to corporations and adults and I give lectures at schools for children. I do all school assemblies with my books. Yeah. That's and how I'm many books have you written? Doing. Well, I have a uh, 17 out now. I'm shooting for 20. I have three that are in the pipeline that I'm working on. So let's say I've got about 20 books out and I'm going to keep going as long as I can. That's fantastic. And long may that continue. Um, so in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? You're on the right track, honey. Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that. I'd say. I love that. That's nice, short we all and need sweet. encouragement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the right track in more ways than one, obviously. <laughs> Oh, I don't know, but that's that's that was the first thought I had. So yeah, that's, that's so, what I'd say. How can people learn more about you and uh, what you what you've been doing? Oh, thank you. If if you want to know about, more about me or my books, and we have a small nonprofit too uh, to give back to these places and communities and to help produce more books, uh, JanReynolds.com. It's my name, one word, lowercase. Dot com And on there are my books and my email to connect with me, whatever you need. So just J-A-N-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S, com, And I would love to hear from you. And you know what? Life is good. And if you have a dream and a passion, even if it's a sideline, 
go for it. There's a reason you have that passion and explore it. You know, be curious, be curious, be curious, be curious. I love that. Um, so, Jen, this interview has just reminded me of uh, the time when you walk into a doctor's office and you pick up a copy of a magazine that captures your attention. And after flipping through several interesting topics, you settle on one and you, that you choose to read. And then they call your name and then you've got to put the magazine away. Uh, the same is true for this interview. You know, sadly, you know, our time is, is finite, but I still have a hundred questions that I wanted to ask you. And uh, you've lived a life that many of us wish we could or had. Um, love that you said be curious because I think that is the one thing that would uh, allow us to to live that kind of life. And so it makes so much more of an honor to have interviewed you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your knowledge, and your insights. And I really hope that one day I can have you back on my show and we can dig deeper into some of these topics as well. I would love that. And it's been an honor that you wanted to listen to me. I am thankful and appreciative. So thank you very much. Fantastic. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants, I talk to Jacob Bogre the Executive Director of the Association of Africans Living in Vermont, an organization whose mission is to equip immigrants and refugees with the necessary skills, tools, and support to resettle in Vermont. I would say that the immigrants are not taker. You know, if you look at many economic statistics, you will see that people have contributed a lot, and they continue to contribute. And... Uh, Probably we are not doing a good job in sharing, but many people also are aware of the contribution of the many refugees and immigrants who have been resettled in this country. The silent majority will see the great impact of uh, immigration should do a better job in sharing also their experience living with immigrants, seeing immigrants contributing to uh, their local economy or bringing a new culture to this country. And I'm really happy that uh, despite the rhetoric, many people are not falling into developing uh, biases. But they continue to provide support. And people have come to ALV and said, well, we are not what you are hearing on the news. If there is something we can do, we'll do our best to support. But do not be afraid. This rhetoric will go away. And it will go away because the good people will stand and they will end the hatred that is starting to develop and that is not going to last.